Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society can sometimes make us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline O'Donoghue and I'm like a novelist. Joining me is author, podcaster and sufferer of vocal fry, Amanda Montel. Like, hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Wow, that was that was a proficient demonstration of hedging, vocal frying and upspeak. Just you fit it all into one sentence real nice. All terms that we're going to learn the meaning of today. Um, I, it's so funny because we're talking today about the word like, and I think we're going to encapsulate a lot of other sort of female-specific vocal tics that have become really, really derided over the last few years and who kind of, they pop up in sort of op-eds and and all that every so often and there's always a little skirmish online about how yet again people are trying to police the way women speak or trying to make us feel ashamed of how women speak but like and as as we talk as we do this I know I'm gonna clock myself constantly and by definition the listener is gonna clock us relying on these things so just so you know everyone we know <laughs> I mean the lovely thing about being a linguist or a pseudo linguist or just someone who cares about linguistics is that it absolves you of like judging other people's speech and it renders you just really curious and fascinated by the way that other people talk and that's like a better position to be in it just like makes you happier not to have to just have so much hate in your heart it's it's so much hate in your heart it really it will give you cancer like i um i i have any any conversation about uh grammar, speech, how people are observing culture, or actually any conversation that's a this or that conversation. Do you know how people have really specific things of being like, oh, you have tea with the milk in first or milk in second? Anything that's a this or that bores the fuck out of me. It's totally boring. It's really low-hanging fruit for someone to feel superior over another person for no good reason whatsoever. This pertains to the content of my second book, Cultish, that us-them dichotomy. We just were constantly forming tribes where there needn't be any. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, we should get to your credentials because you are the author of two books. Um, One I think we'll be leaning on slightly more today, but the first is Word Slut, A Feminist Guide to the English Language and cultish, the language of fanaticism. And cultish is also the sort of um, the founding of your podcast, Sounds Like a Cult, which is so fantastic. And uh, really gets to the heart of so many things, just both real cults and imagined. Not imagined, but less less clear, like Soul Cycle or... um, Things that sound like a cult. (laughs) Yeah, things that sound like a cult. But what made you choose the word like today? Yeah, well... 
Like is just a subject that people can't stop asking me about. <laughs> it's one that yeah. um, provides endless fascination for, for me and others. Um, but yeah, it's one of these concepts that women are punished for, chastised for, criticized for in person, in think pieces on the internet. Um, and yet there is real linguistics out there defending the use of the word like and demonstrating that it is not only young women, teenage girls that use it, and it is not a sign of insecurity, ditziness, and stupidity, but serves a real social function. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's one of my favorite sections of word slut to talk about. So I, I, I thought I'd share it with the people. The people need it's to know. So, it's so worth sharing because after reading that chapter today, because I'm somebody who's like a very vested interest in, in that word for two reasons. First of all, because I'm a broadcaster and a podcaster and somebody whose like voice has been popped around the internet a lot, I I will get like comments or reviews or shitty emails about yeah. how often I say the word like. And second of all, um, I'm I'm from Cork, which is a city in Ireland, a city in the south of Ireland. County Cork. County Cork. I've been there. <laughs> Have you? Oh yeah. Why? Why? I just love Ireland. I don't know. I like road tripped around Ireland a few years ago. I feel very called to Ireland. Actually, I wrote part of Word Slut in Ireland. Really? Um, I took a semester of Irish my uh, so, uh, my junior year of college. Oh wow! I love wow. I love Ireland. <laughs> we thank you. We thank you for your business and your patronage. <laughs> but so, um, well. you probably noticed this while you were in Cork, though that um. Cork people, we end we often end our sentences with, like. with the word like. Yeah, that's yeah. The, I don't actually know what that like is. Um, that's yeah. something totally different. My, uh, regrettably, word slut focuses primarily on American English, which doesn't it isn't much of a problem. Like through most of the book, because obviously you know, like British English, Irish English, Australian English, American English, there's a lot in common. But there are a few little quirks. Um, for example, like the usage of cunt in the UK and Ireland is a little bit different than in yeah, the US. a little bit softer, I think. Yeah, like you can use it as a term of endearment in yeah, the UK, yeah. or at least as sort of like a gentler insult. Whereas in the US, you really can't. And I have theories about that, but um, yeah, like in Ireland, it'll be like blah 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 blah, like <laughs> yeah. And it's and, and specifically in Cork, and uh, I actually found out the reason why. But, oh, tell me. Um, okay, so I'm going to front this by saying that I, I found this on a forum, that, and this post was made in 2013, and it is not substantiated by scholarly so work. So you have a theory. But you have an internet theory. I have an internet theory that I read, and I, I nodded and said, yeah, that sounds legit. Okay. So, so as you might know, in the 18th century... Uh, British colonizers tried to outlaw the Irish language, which is part of the reason why Irish people primarily speak English today. And uh, this is very much de rigueur in the British Empire. They really loved to smash out people's native languages as much as possible. Yep. But around the same time of that happening, there was a huge French influx of the Huguenots into Cork City, right? So at the exact same time, Irish people were being forced to learn English and French people had to learn English. And French people all end their, well, not all, but like uh, one of their uh, conversational sort of crutches or filler words can be ending their sentences with la. 
Mm. I don't know if you speak French, but that's a very common thing. And so the word like starts emerging in the English language at the end of sentences around this time. And then, uh, uh, Cork is a port town, they, uh, lots of people immigrate to Liverpool and now Scousers say like at the end of their sentences as well. It's like, it's kind of like a, a like with a H in it. Ah. So I kind of, while this is unrelated to your area, to your like, you know, areas of study, I sort of love that this word that gets so much flack is actually so flexible and so international. Oh, of course. I mean, language doesn't arrive for no reason. The, the origin story of English, American English... Uh, UK English, Irish English, like all kinds of English. It's the product of history, of violence, of culture. Like culture and language go hand in hand. And we tend to think of language in terms of like proper language, you know, the grammar and vocabulary you learn in school. But that standardized prescriptive language is arbitrary. It's boring. It's fairly new. It was like, you know, it was put in place after the invention of the printing press, after the fall of feudalism, when having a standardized language could help you move up the socioeconomic ladder and when, you know, the language started to be taught because it was able to be printed. And like, that's cool or whatever. But what's much, much cooler is how language evolves from the bottom up in a grassroots way. And that is very much the product of, you know, travel and war and, you know, it's, it's like a fairy tale, but real. It's, it's fascinating. And, and people totally take that stuff for granted and pass these really pretentious judgments on how other people speak without realizing that in every context, language is there for a reason. A language form wouldn't exist if it didn't serve a real purpose. Um, and like is no exception. <laughs> I, I find like such a fascinating one in particular because I think it's more... You, you mentioned in your book uh, it's kind of a valley girl thing. And obviously the valley is like a, a section of Los Angeles, right? Which is, you know, we're, I'm Irish. I don't really know that much about Los Angeles geography, but it is this, it is sort of this export that has, I, I mainly know for like the teen movies of the nineties and the eighties, right? The, um, like the John Clueless, Hughes movies and Clueless, totally. 10 things I have about you, all that stuff. And so, and because we all sort of share this culture, it's sort of like mostly American culture, we're all sort of know we know what you're talking about when you mean Valley Girl, even if we don't know what the valley is, which I find quite beautiful. (laughs) It's so famous. (laughs) It's so famous. Well, you know, this is the thing about like, there, there are six completely distinct forms of the word like, which I'll get into in a second, that all serve a distinct purpose. Um, And young women from the valley are not at all the only people who use them. There is one form of like that is thought to have been popularized by young women living in, uh, I was about to say Silicon Valley. That's the wrong valley. San Fernando Valley. In Silicon Valley, they just use corporate bullshit vernacular that we don't need to talk about today. Um, But the, yeah, the, the thing is that we tend to blame young women for a lot of language features, including upspeak when you end declarative sentences with the upward intonation of a question, and vocal fry, which is when your vocal folds are very relaxed and vibrate very quickly like this. Um, 
the excess of emojis, you know, all kinds of new language forms. We tend to blame young women, even though these language forms come to be adopted by absolutely everyone and should really be celebrated. I mean, linguists find time and time again that our language's innovators are young women living in urban areas and our language's least innovative users are non-mobile, older, rural men, which are given the majestic acronym NORMS. So, I love that. You know, young women are the pioneers of language. If you want to know how people are going to be speaking in 10, 20 years, just listen to a young urban female. And yet this language is not celebrated, not because of the language itself, but because of our preconceived notions and prejudices and bi- biases toward teenage girls, which are like a universally disdained population, typically. Um, You know, there's this amazing quote from a New Yorker article that I reference in Word Slut um, that says, you know, if middle-aged men had been the ones to pioneer like and up talk, we'd be reading the like New Yorker. But instead, it's teenage girls that we tend to problematize everything from how they speak to what they wear. Um, And this is the reason why so many of these language features have a bad rap, even though when you break it down, thanks to the wonderful work of of linguists, um, it's it's really useful, all of these different types of like, which I can explain. You've just set off so many sparks in my brain there. Uh, So many things. But one of which is that thing of, as you say, eventually, like, you know, men use like all the time, but it's not clocked in the same way. And it reminds me of all of these studies and stats that you read about all the time about like the way people think when they might have a woman and a man talking for the exact same length of time, but everyone's conception of how long the woman has been talking is is much much longer or like in a a scene in a movie when there's a crowd when the crowd is 50 percent women and 50 percent men we perceive there to be more women because we're just like not as used to seeing women in public or we're, we're like we we notice it more and that's the issue really is that we live in a culture of default maleness which applies to Everything, not just language. Um, but when, you know, a, a white cisgendered man um, does something or says something, we just sort of accept it by default um, because these this is the type of person that we expect to have power, expect to be correct. Um, and then, you know, when marginalized people, whether we're talking about gender, race, ethnicity, anything uses a language form or dresses in a certain way, then we all of a sudden notice it because those people have a marked status in our culture. Um, whether or not the the thing that they're doing is really worth noticing. But, but often it is worth noticing in a positive way. So the patriarchy, you know? <laughs> it's a hell of a drug. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you think there is this sort of subconscious thing where it's like, say if we say you see, you know, a woman or a person of color on uh, or, or someone who's like visibly queer on a panel and do you think there's like a subconscious thing in the society because they're so differentiated from what we see to be the norm in, ter- in terms of what you just the the, uh, the acronized norm and the se- and the norm in the sense that we've all internalized this idea that a white straight guy is the version of normal and everything everything that deviates from that is a deviation mm-hmm. that we're when we see anyone who doesn't fit into that structure in front of us on a stage, we're clocking them more and we're asking them to prove themselves to us more that they deserve to be there, that they're intellectuals or whatever. And so we clock their likes, we clock their upspeak, we clock their vocal fry or whatever. It's like this um, this great <laughs> this great thing that Lindy West once wrote. I think it was the headline of one of her chapters in her recent book, but it was a, it was Ted Bundy is not that charming. Are you high? Are you? Yes. Ted Bundy is not good looking. Are you high? (laughs) I actually, I actually referenced that chapter in my second book, Cultish. Maybe that's where I got it from because I've read both your books in a really short period of time. Yes. No, I, I referenced that chapter in the context of Cultish because I talk about our our warped perception of charisma and of the type of person that we trust to speak with authority on topics like God and government. Um, so Lindy West's headline gets at that point, um, and I talk about it in in Cultish as well. But yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is the reason why those think pieces saying like, Young women need to stop using vocal fry and claim their authority, like or claim their confidence. This is this very lean-in uh, form mm. of feminism, um, whose influence we've been under for a few decades now. This form of, of quasi-feminism that asks us to accommodate to the standards of white cis het men because these are the people currently in most positions of power, and if we want to achieve any amount of power we need to approximate their speech their manner of dress etc um even though that does nothing to actually like move gender equality forward <laughs> um yeah yeah just, uh, and, and oftentimes and oftentimes it doesn't even work do you no. know what I mean? No, <laughs> like, it it's not work. like there's no version of you taking all these tips and then you becoming the CEO you deserve to be. Do you no, know exactly. What I mean, I, mean like- I talk about this in Wordslut the idea of the double bind that women are kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. There are these two molds that women are expected to fill. Either you're this domineering bitch or you're mm. this sort of like slutty ditz <laughs> who, yeah. you know, doesn't deserve power. Um, sort of, you know, 
those who's uh, who will resonate with this reference, uh, like Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin fall like squarely mm. on either side of this double bind. Um, and the way that they talk really reflects and perpetuates that that double bind. Um, so, yeah, no, you can you can like listen to all the spin doctors and vocal coaches and, and all of that. But then you might just end up sounding inauthentic or sounding like you're putting on a voice. Um, yes. And so then you're fucked that way, too. Um, so, you know, my my two cents is that uh, we should you know, really look into the linguistics and come to understand that the way a woman speaks is not flawed simply because she's a woman. And it's certainly not flawed because of the language itself, because that there's proof in the linguistics. Um, so we should really, you know, own our voices in whatever way we can. Maybe we'll need to temporarily code switch a little bit to avoid being fired or chastised or whatever. But then once, you know, we ascend to a position of power, we can avoid perpetuating those same oppressive standards. We can avoid telling women like, no, you really need to use less filler words on that call or you really need to adjust your speech in this way or that way. I mean, I when I was working in digital media, one of my old jobs, I remember we had these media trainers come in and had us uh, just like speak conversationally on camera for five minutes just to see how comfortable oh, we were. Oh. And um, I remember I was chastised for saying like too much. But at the same time, they were like, oh, but but you really were quite likable other than that. I thought it was, first of all, ironic that they were using the word like while criticizing me for saying like too much. <laughs> um, but I also thought it interesting because you know, something that linguists have found is that speech lacking in hedges, speech that doesn't have any likes, any you knows, any wells, any I means, these are all hedges um, in linguistics terminology, can be perceived as too robotic, too stilted, not relatable. So I was like, you can't win. You can't you win. You cannot win. So let's let's go back to the sort of the the benefits of the word like. Because it, you're you're right. It is like it, it's a wonderfully flexible oh, yeah. word, and for me, I think the way it's the most useful is it's a it's as a storytelling device. Totally, right? totally. So um, as I mentioned, there are these six completely distinct forms of the word like. They're all homonyms, just how the noun watch, meaning the timepiece on your wrist, mm -hmm. and the verb watch, meaning what you do with your eyes when you turn on the TV, are homonyms. Um, so the two oldest types of like in the English language are the adjective like and the verb like. Um, so in the sentence, I like your sweater, it makes you look like a cool person. Uh, the first, and it does. It Listen, does. It, does. It, really it does. So I was speaking <laughs> the truth there. The first like is a verb, and the second is an adjective. And even the most curmudgeonly English-speaking norms are fine with both um, because they've been around for a very long time, and everybody of, of across the gender spectrum uses these two interchangeably without even noticing that they're different. Um, so nobody ever has a problem with those. But there are these four new likes that developed more recently than that. And these are all separate words with different uses as well. Um, and only two of these likes are used more frequently by women or thought to be used more frequently by women. And only one of them is thought to have been masterminded by valley girls, if you will, or uh, young Southern California females in the 90s. 
That one's my favorite one, which is the storytelling device you were talking about. That is the quotative like, which you would hear in the sentence. And I was like, oh, my God. And she was like, what? And I was like, exactly. Um, And, you know, as made fun of. It's such a rich tool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. This is a widely lampooned like. People love making fun of it. But pragmatically, it's my favorite one because it allows you to tell a story or to relay something that happened without having to quote the interaction verbatim. So you could say something like, my boss was like, I need those papers by Monday. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? But when you tell that story, you're not repeating exactly what you said. You're just conveying what you wanted to say or how you felt. So it's like, thanks, Valley Girls, because this very useful quotative like continues to explode in modern usage. And and we both fucking love it. Everybody does. People need to it's, stop complaining. It's, it's <laughs> so good because it allow. It, it, first of all, it here's what I love about it. It draws you and your listener or listeners into a into a story world where we're all in this sort of verbal contract that what you're about to hear is not necessarily true, but feels true yes. to me. Yes. And so so that's number one. So we're all in a verbal pact with one another. And then number two, it allows me to be funnier than I actually was in the situation. <laughs> well, you know, I can oh, be like... 100%. As a creative nonfiction writer, I yeah. could not live without the quotative like. It's creative nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> it is! It is! And like... It's the thing, that thing of, you know, you know that, that world that we all live in all the time of, oh God, if only we'd said the right thing at the right time and yes. we would have really shattered everyone in that yes. room. The, the, that, that version of like allows us to do that. And I was like, not for all the fucking tea in China, buddy. And then I walked out. <laughs> and now we all know that didn't happen. Yes. But I would have liked it to have happened. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. And again, if this quotative like had been invented by a bunch of dudes that, I don't know, look like my dad, we would be celebrating it as a masterful contribution to English. Um, but yeah, instead the, it was invented by, by Valley Girls. So there would be, there would be literature festivals named, named just the like festival. <laughs> and it, it would be up. like Malcolm Gladwell, fucking all those guys would be doing it. <laughs> A thousand percent. Neil deGrasse Tyson would be there. Um, yeah, yeah. It would be like this rich speaking contest where you had to tell spontaneous creative nonfiction. It would be like beat poetry. It would be $200 a ticket. <laughs> Oh, that's fucking amazing. You're so right about that. Um, anyway, th- th- there are some other likes if we want to go through them. Uh, there's there's what's called a discourse marker like, um, and that would be found in a sentence such as, oh, you like my sweater? Like, this sweater, it's, it's not even new. Um, and that is this discourse marker, which is sometimes called a filler word, and it's a type of phrase that can help a person connect or organize or express a certain attitude with their speech. Um, other language forms in this category are things like just and you know and actually. Um, so this is, again, another type of like that's really criticized and young women are blamed for it. But again, like speech that lacked in this type of like would mm. sound really stilted, um, sometimes you wouldn't be able to convey the same thing without it. Um, and then there are two other forms of like, which are uh, an adverb, um, and that would be used to approximate something as in, I bought this suit like five years ago, or I bought this sweater like two days ago, instead of about. 
Um, and, and this is another very common like. And the last like is a discourse particle, which is very similar to the discourse marker. And you would find that in a sentence such as, um, I think this sweater is like my favorite possession. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, there's no, again, much, much to say. Um, the, the, I think the notion of filler words I find very fascinating. Um, because So I just came back from, you catching me at a uh, fortuitous time, I just came back from like quite a prestigious uh, literature festival here in England. Um, I spent the whole weekend there. It was a great time. But as with all kinds of literature festivals, uh, there was a huge indexing of people who had been to, to very elite educational spaces we're talking like Cambridge Oxford that kind of thing people who have like been trained from a very young age and I'm not trying to be like a class warrior here I'm not really that interested in that but it's the 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 difference is worth clocking but people from from a very young age have been taught that they are they have a space that is valid in a, in a room and I noticed very quickly I you know because I'm Irish because I don't really come from those kind of educational spaces I, w- I noticed how much I was using filler words more than they were. And it, you know, I, I had my, my backup was about it a bit. But then I, I sort of realized that filler words, they, they are often used as crutches by people who aren't as used to holding attention in the same way mm. and aren't as comfortable with it. Right. And also often come from people who come from, to go back to our earlier thing about the Hugo Nuts, uh, have cultures that were colonized and therefore a sort of filler words are baked into their discourse. Like I think of a lot of Jamaican people I know, there's a lot of filler words mm. in, the, in the way they talk because they were also forced to speak English. Sure. So I think what you're getting at is like filler words are are types of language that are are often found in natural speech. They're found in everyday conversations that aren't practiced, that are spontaneous, that are about forming connections, communicating naturally. And the type of speech that someone who went who went to Cambridge might use on a panel is like literally a different register. It's a different dialect. They are in a way code switching. Um, I doubt that they really talk that way in their everyday life. And if they do, it's 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 conditioning. It's not really like how how they spoke when they were little with their friends or whatever. Um, and I find myself code switching like this depending on the context. I mean, this is what we all do naturally. Like everybody code switches in some way. Mm. When I'm doing an interview on NPR, I slip into this like NPR register, which I was not able to do earlier in my career. I just talked like myself. But with practice and with this like pedigree that you can either, you know, manufacture yourself or you get it by going to a fancy school you sort of like learn how to pick up that like fancy register which is genuinely like a little bit of a different dialect so I think like your form of speech with your your likes and your filler it's it's really a much more authentic way of speaking than these chuckleheads and blowhards who went to (laughs) Oxford (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I genuinely like and I'm friends with lots of those chuckleheads, so I'm not going to rail them too hard. <laughs> no, I, I love I, I love the, the Ivy Leaguers. No shade. I love the elites too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No shade, no. So another thing about um, women's use of like and why women sometimes hedge with like more than men do is because women 
often delve into more sensitive and intimate territory in their conversations. And this is just conditioning. This is not like natural for women. Um, But, you know, women are conditioned to be, you know, slightly more emotional, vulnerable, open in their conversations, um, talk about more intimate things. And if you were to talk about something really sensitive, you know, like death, love, therapy, mental health, whatever, Mm. without any filler words, that's going to sound really insensitive, really harsh. When women use like, when they're delving into the sensitive territory, it's not because they don't know what they're saying. They know exactly what they're saying. It's to make it softer. It's to make it more open. It's to invite other people into the conversation. It's to connect. And I reference studies that, that, you know, study exactly this in word slut. But again, you know, it's not the language itself that we take issue with. It's because we assume based on our pre-existing notions that because a woman is saying like, it must be because she's ditzy and insecure and inauthoritative when it's really for something very legit. <laughs> that's so, uh, that's so interesting. I, I, it's so funny because, um, what you just said about women using filler words in order to seem sort of softer when they're in those conversations. I have heard that before, but it's like the way that it's always phrased or framed is that like women are appearing too soft. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Totally. And, and like they're, they're softening their statements and maybe not. And it's, it just, it really reminds me of this entire framework we're in where like softness is vilified and, and 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 there's no space in those conversations for yeah there's a need for softness you can't say to your friend you're for example you're grieving try therapy exactly you have to say, it seems like you might still be like grieving so you maybe know? you should maybe yeah. like try therapy you know exactly. those are two different statements even though they say the same thing exactly and one is going to be re- be received much more effectively and this is all to say that not every hedge serves the purpose of softening or being gentle. There are hedges that actually establish the speaker as an authority figure. Um, and this is why we have the whole field of linguistics to like actually do studies and to compare and contrast. And I talk about many of these in the book. But um, yeah, I mean, our perception of language, again, has so little to do with the language forms themselves and so much more to do with our judgments of the speaker. And I, I read in your book as well, there was this great point about how often women and language, it's the only real tool they have. So, you know, women in urban environments, particularly working class women trying to find jobs, you mentioned the sort of the pink collar job, right? Right. The, uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, of course. Better position too? Yeah. So, you know, linguists have found that young women innovate with language more than others do potentially because it is this very real social power tool for them. Um, For example, right in, in some working class communities, a man could get a pretty well paying blue collar job as a farmer or a miner jobs that aren't as easily available to women Um, in order for a woman to move up in the world. She might have to get what's called a pink collar job, which is, you know, a step above being, you know, a house cleaner or something like that. We're talking a secretary, um, something of that ilk. And in order to get that sort of job, 
a woman will need to acquire new language skills, whether it's a completely new language or just a different dialect or register. Um, and if, if a woman has any hope of climbing the socioeconomic ladder, you know, being good with a hammer or a hoe or a tractor, that's that's <laughs> not really going to be her power tool language is. Um, and I, I talk about uh, a study that really um, literally illustrates this um, in the book. But I think that's kind of beautiful that, you know, m- marginalized communities, not only women, but, you know, people of color, queer folks, um, women of color, especially, especially queer people of color, will will innovate as a way to form solidarity, to stay safe, um, but also to move up in the world. Yeah, and then those those sort of pink collar jobs that you mentioned, they're often the jobs that are used to represent the company that they have adapted to, like they've adapted their language to to be hired by, right? Right, exactly. So it's like the secular thing of of women adapting their language going into positions not of authority but of visibility mm-hmm. and then and then they're slowly changing the culture again right um it makes me maybe you don't know anything about this and maybe you have no opinion but i would be really interested in what you thought of elizabeth holmes oh i have so <laughs> many opinions <laughs> so i just watched a documentary on her for the listener uh, who might not know elizabeth holmes was a uh an American CEO in Silicon Valley who had a huge, her, huge $9 billion company that turned out to be a hoax and uh, none of it worked, none of it was real. And she had a very specific way of, of appearing in public that I would be very interested to hear you speak about. Yeah, sure. So Elizabeth Holmes had a very distinct look and voice. Um, she looked... Very traditionally feminine, I would say. She was blonde. Mm. She had this bright red lipstick. Um, she looked like a young Queen Victoria. She, she had that did. sort of like Habsburg jaw a bit. She, she, she did. She totally did. <laughs> I mean, she's not dead. She's alive. <laughs> yeah, she's like cancelled. So same thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so she had this look that was, you know, Feminine, but not too feminine. She would wear these like Isimiyaki, uh, Steve Jobs-esque black turtlenecks. Um, but she she had this look that really fit the type of power that she was coming into. You know, it's like Silicon Valley was finally ready for its first female billionaire, um, which is a pathetic statement, but true. And um, she wasn't becoming a billionaire because she'd created some like cool, like, techie game or something like that she was becoming a billionaire based on this totally fraudulent healthcare app that would be like saving lives and the advertisements had these like wide-eyed babies on them it was this sort of like very maternal form of power that she was uh seeking oh it was a beautiful dream it was the whole thing if it had worked it would have been a beautiful dream (laughs) well I, i i i'm not gonna give her that much credit i think she was very opportunistic and i don't think she like genuinely wanted to help people i think she saw an opportunity to match her particular breed of femininity with a money-making uh, opportunity. <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't think she would have been accepted if she tried yeah. to create, like, the next Uber of whatever the fuck. If she'd it, been competing in the same space, it had to be a, a nurturing it had, thing. It, right, it had to be this, like, wellnessy nurturing thing. Um, but the interesting thing about Elizabeth Holmes is that juxtaposed with this very feminine nurturing image, she 
altered her natural speaking voice to be very, very, very deep. It was totally manufactured. It was like totally fake. But it's she, alarming. It's the alarming. first time you hear her speak, it's very alarming. It's very distinctive and it is fake. I mean, there you can find footage or like recordings of her speaking naturally when she like wavers and her voice like returns to its natural pitch or whatever. But but when she was speaking in public, it was really it was about it was about this low. Um and it wasn't it didn't disgust people actually. It it made them even more intrigued. And my theory is that it almost by way of juxtaposition like highlighted her femininity even more. It's like a Charlie's angel with long hair and tight spandex carrying a gun or like a really <laughs> hot girl like hot feminine normatively feminine woman like smoking a cigar. It's like this one yes. masculine thing. It's like a little bit yes. of salt makes it taste sweeter. It was like whoa, here's this like one quirky, really intriguing, perversely alluring, masculine thing backdropped against this otherwise like nurturing feminine woman. I think it added to her allure. And it was like, even the way she spoke and I, I like, it was completely without hedges and it was that sort of like very, very direct answer to your question. I hope that satisfies. It was like very American presidential way of speaking. It really, really fascinated me because I came, I was reading your work and watching that documentary at the same time. And it was almost like, oh, here's someone who clearly read Amanda's book and took the wrong lesson. And took it wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think she, it was, it was extremely contrived. It was forced, but juxtaposed with the rest of what she had going on, I think it intrigued people. Yeah. Wow. So really it is. It's a, it's a damned if you do and damned if you don't. Well, then if she had like a good business, <laughs> she would have probably been fine. <laughs> she had a sound business. Her situation was totally batshit. Uh, it really, really was. And we could like we could do a whole entire podcast just like unpacking <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes's situation and the gender dynamics and linguistics of it. Um, but no, I'm I'm ugh. Desperately okay. fascinated by her voice. I almost included her as a case study in Cultish, but there was too much to include, so I cut it. <laughs> okay, so now that we have literally seven minutes left before your next thing, yeah. I would like I would like a small treatise, perhaps, on the word literally. Oh, and literally. Why, why do we love it so much? I can't live without it. Oh, sure. Well, people get... Although all... lately I've swapped it out with for fundamentally. <laughs> fundamentally. You know, people huff and puff about uh, young women, again, in particular, using literally to mean the opposite of literally. But actually, literally has been used in this way for centuries, for literally 250 years. Literally has also been used to mean the opposite of literally. Um, This type of word is nothing new. It's called a contronym. It's when a word can be used to mean what it actually means, but it can also be used to mean its opposite. Another example, kind of a slangy example, would be the use of bad to mean genuinely bad or bad to mean good. Like, oh, you're bad. (laughs) Um, I've turned on now. There there are lots of, you can Google contronym. There are loads of examples and literally is by no means a new one. Um, But, you know, people just, again, get upset when young women do stuff. And there are biases, other biases other than gender bias at play here. The recency illusion, 
when people think that something is new just because it's new to them, etc. Mm. <laughs> so for our listeners who like me, over-rely on hedges and upspeak and all these other wonderful things we've now come to appreciate. Is there like a one-line dismissive thing the next time somebody says to you in conversation, oh, was it like that or was it that? Yeah, yeah. Or something like that. The next time someone accuses you of saying like too much, just tell them, oh, really? Which kind? Because there are six different forms of the word like, the adjective, the adverb... The oh, verb, God. the discourse marker, the discourse particle, the approximate. Which one was I overusing? I'd be happy to review it for you. <laughs> oh, that's hot. Oh, I love that. Ooh, spicy. Just very calmly, very calmly, very calmly. And their balls will just shrink up into their body and it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, you really, you really need to memorize all six of the like meanings and then do your best sort of like Miranda Priestley talking about Blue jumpers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, criticizing a woman for using the word like. What is her line? Uh, florals, florals for spring re- revolutionary. What does she say? Yeah. Someone criticizing a woman for saying like groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I really hope this podcast really arms people and makes them feel a little bit less embarrassed because I know a lot of people message me saying that they would love to do a podcast themselves but they hate the way they speak and I feel like some of the issues that we've talked about today is part of that um so Amanda is there anything else we've talked about your work a lot but is it something else that you'd like us to know about (laughs) you know whenever I do an interview I completely black out and forget everything I said so um (laughs) I think I'll end it here yeah (laughs) yeah so an amazing podcast called sounds like a cult um, word slot is wonderful and cultish the language of fanaticism has been you I've met lots of people who whose work I've admired but you're one of the few people whose work I actually use oh um, so yeah in, in my YA series I I have this sort of imaginary cult in there and I really needed to get to grips with what the everyday patter of that world was and mm. your your book is like one of the foundational texts and expect to see yourself in the acknowledgements. Hey, I'm honored. <laughs> I am honored. Um, it, to speak your language, Guramahogut? <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> this has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me about the podcast at sentimentalpod at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thank you to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the artwork, and Hannah Varro for the mixing. <laughs>